0: Dripping Down
1: Science The Naked
0: Scientists
1: Hello, Happy New Year Welcome to the first edition of The Naked Scientists in 2007 I'm Chris Smith And also here to help with this week's show We have Dave Ansell Hi And Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hi, Chris. Now, coming up shortly, we're going to be finding out how vibrating vests are helping soldiers to send messages to each other, how researchers have uncovered a new source of stem cells, but unlike embryonic stem cells, these ones are much more fetally friendly, and also Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon, isn't the frozen wasteland that we thought it was. It's certainly frozen, but it's dotted with lakes. Wouldn't go swimming, though. They're at minus 200 degrees C.
2: Also this week, we're exploring why red wine is good for you with Roger Corder from Queen Mary's College and finding out how caffeine affects the body with Bristol University's Peter Rogers. And Geoffrey Gordon joins us from the States, where he's discovered that bacteria living in your guts might be responsible for making you fat.
3: And I'll be doing this week's Cool Kitchen Science Experiment live here in the studio to find out how salt helps helps keep your car on the road. You need some ice cubes, some cotton and some salt. Grab them now because we'll be doing it soon. And if you're in the mood to win some
1: prizes, Roger Corder, who's here in the studio with us, has kindly donated a copy of his book. It's called The Wine Diet, and all you need to know about how to live long and prosper, essentially, in there. And uh, we also have some super calendars, which have been donated by the people who run the Matangini Project, and that's an initiative to try to raise money to provide clean water for people who live in Africa. They've got some really fantastic shots of rural Africa on this calendar. It's really worth having. If you want to have a go at winning some of those prizes, you just need to have a go at this week's simple question, very wine-oriented, Oriented, what's the gas that makes champagne fizzy? The Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's
0: best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net.
1: Now, I'm just going to tell you, b- before Christmas, we did a competition where we said to you, uh, can you tell us what these various chemical formulae meant? And uh, people did quite well, but I'm just going to tell you what they were, because it was quite funny, some of the things that we got, we got suggested. But we asked you what C9H804 was. That was, of course, aspirin. That was for the morning after. If you drank drunk too much, c 2 h 50 that was ethanol. The one that everyone fell down at, though, was what was this? C203, H718, O328, N4... K2, NA1, S1, CL1. Well, the answer was it was a taste the difference Sainsbury's Christmas pudding.
2: Fantastic. Now, has anyone ever had the feeling that their clothes are trying to talk to you? Odd question, I know, but maybe your shirt cries out, wash me, or your socks scream, change me.
1: Is that what your clothes do?
2: No, certainly not me. That's why I was asking you guys. But anyway, maybe talking clothes might not be quite as mad as they sound. And in fact, they could have important applications in the military. So much so that scientists in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in America are developing a vibrating vest that could give silent commands to soldiers in action. Now, this vest contains 16 small vibrating motors embedded in the back, which respond to a remote computer and spell out a sort of back braille on the back of these soldiers' um, uniforms. Now, the team is led by Lynette Jones at MIT, and they're testing 15 vibrating codes on volunteers by trying to guide them blindfolded through an obstacle course and to very great effect, because nearly all of these signals are being correctly interpreted. Now, they aren't actually spelling out words because this this system of vibrating motors isn't that sensitive, but they're basically a kind of tactile code that they can teach the soldiers to respond to. Um, and some of the ones they're trying out are the all four corners of the vibra- vest vibrating together, which means stop a vibrating column which moves to the left or to the right indicating which way the person should turn and then various other combinations of things that mean raise your arms up or hop on the spot which I'm not quite sure how useful that would be in <laughs> battle or combat but maybe they're just testing out ideas but anyway these vib- va- vibrating vests seem to show some great promise since it could be really useful to have a way of communicating really simple tasks when a soldier's hands and eyes and ears are busy doing other things so maybe one day they won't be quite so Mad if soldiers imagining that their clothes are you don't think it'll them.
1: put them off at all, having their back suddenly start vibrating when they're actually trying to do something delicate or try and avoid being shot
2: possibly, possibly, but we never know might be a good idea. It's
1: interesting because you always seem to bring up un- sort of, let's say underwear, but clothing related electrical interactions on this programme because there was an issue a few years ago, you had this story about uh, underpants that monitored your heart rate and they could, with a mobile phone connected to them, alert an ambulance if your if your heart decided to go into a funny rhythm or something. Which Fantastic,
2: I think mean, there's so many clothing opportunities out there, we're just not exploring <laughs> widely well, Scientists
1: at the University of Rensselaer Polytechnic in America uh, have tried the process of Electrotomography, tomography which is passing electrical currents through tissue, to make a bra that's capable of detecting if there's a breast tumour so you have this electrical signal passing through the tissue it can pick up if, uh, if there's abnormal transit of the electric signal and that would uh, signal the possible existence of a tumour. They're still working on that I don't think it's had enormous uh, amount of success yet um, and, and there have been various other things, haven't there, along the way people monitoring various things with clothes
2: I think it's great, and then we had the clothes that could change colour as well, I think, so you could change change the way you look just by Yeah, you can your make
1: bottom. your jacket go red to match that tie. But uh, anyway, this week researchers in fact today have announced in in the journal Nature Biotechnology that they've come up with a fetally friendly form of stem cells. Now, The kind of stem cells that show the most promise are what are called embryonic stem cells, in other words, cells that are derived from the developing embryo. It's been very contentious in the news this week for various reasons, but people are interested in these cells because they have great potential because they can turn into almost any cell in the body, and that's why people are enthusiastic about them, because you could take those cells and then repair a tissue that's being damaged by a disease or by ageing using these cells if you turn them into the right kind of things. Problem is they're not without risk. They can they can spawn cancers if you inject them. And also people don't agree with them ethically. Why should you destroy life in order to preserve life, some people say. Well, it's good news because Paolo De Coppi and his colleagues who work at the Wake Forest Institute for Regenerative Medicine in Winston Salem in America have found that actually there's another population of cells that we could plug into, and we currently don't even don't even bother to use them. They're called amniotic fluid stem cells, or AFS cells. They're cells which are drifting around, around the baby and the fluid that uh, surrounds the developing embryo and fetus. And these particular cells have a great degree of potential to do most of the things that we think embryonic stem cells do. But they don't seem to trigger cancers in the same way. The researchers injected them into experimental animals and they didn't trigger tumours. And... Using the right chemical signals, they could turn these cells into almost any tissue in the body. They made brain cells, they made liver cells, they made pancreas cells, so in other words, the cells that can produce Uh, Insulin, So that might be helpful for people who are going to suffer or have suffered from diabetes for a while And then the really exciting thing, they managed to make new bone They took a scaffolding, which is a kind of matrix material And seeded it with these AFS cells and then implanted it into mice And 18 weeks later did a small CT scan on the mouse And found that there was the evidence of new bone formation in this scaffold It had been ossified or mineralized. So it looks like these cells can be turned into almost anything
3: so are these cells just sort of wandering around and the, they got lost when they were trying to make a baby and they just
1: sort of wandered off? And... Well, we know that when babies form during embryogenesis, you shed cells from the surface of the developing embryo into the amniotic fluid... And we actually use those cells and certain populations of them to do diagnosis. It's called an amniocentesis. So if there's a worry that the baby may be suffering from a disease such as Down syndrome, you can stick a needle into the amniotic fluid and suck out some of the fluid and you're looking for those cells that are in there because you can analyse the genetic material they contain and see if there's anything wrong with the baby or if it's healthy. Now what's uh, actually been found is that 1% of the cells that you suck out are actually these stem cells. They're cells that have fallen off of the baby when it's been developed and they're just floating around in the amniotic fluid and because the majority of these amniocenteses that are being done are being done on perfectly normal babies there's no reason why you couldn't store or bank those cells and then use them not just for your own baby but also for other people's babies people reckon there's enough being done to provide a massive resource that we could all use
3: Brilliant, well, completely different story here Ellen Stowfort and colleagues at UCL um, have been looking at Titan Titan's a moon of Saturn a uh, long, long way away and they, they, Titan's very cold and they thought it was just a solid um, icy Landscape, but they've found actual evidence for um, lakes on Titan. Now, uh, these aren't the kind of lakes which you'd want to go swimming in. Um, they're sitting there at about minus 179 degrees centigrade. So, it'd be a bit chilly. And if you did try and swim in them, you'd sink like a stone because it's about six times lighter than water. How did they actually find them and why, why is this a, a sort of step forward in what we thought was going on? Well they the thought there might be um, methane on um, liquid methane on Titan for a long time because it's about the right sort of temperature but they couldn't actually find any evidence for it. They found sort of like river tr- channels but no actual lakes um, and so the Cassini probe which is an orbiter which has gone to find out about Saturn and its moons has flown very close to the North Pole and it's taken a picture with its radar camera because the atmosphere is really foggy and smoggy, Uh, a 250-kilometre-wide strip, uh, long strip of the North Pole, and they found very flat, dark areas. And the only thing which they can think of, the the flat, dark areas tend to be at the bottom of depressions, and the only thing that it could possibly be is some kind of liquid which is filling up these flat areas. And they're guessing that it's probably methane. There might even be sort of a methaneological cycle, a bit like a hydrological cycle, whereby methane evaporates and it rains down just like water does on Earth. Just intriguing to think
1: that you could just dip a bucket
3: in and tip it into your car petrol tank almost and run your car
1: on what people, what is the Titan equivalent of the ocean here on Earth. Indeed. Now, I had an email from Phil, who was listening to us just before Christmas, and he said, uh, Dear Naked Scientists, I really like your show. Good balance of fun and education and science. He's, he's actually writing to me from Australia. He says, The Aussie chick, that would be Ali, who was on before Christmas, who put science before her liver, reminded me of the dental students who would drink beer with electrodes coming out of their mouth so the pH changes in dental plaque could be observed. Someone has to do it. The Naked Scientists. Supported by The Welcome Trust. Here's the Naked Scientist with Chris, Dave and Helen. Now Dave's the person who we normally send out all around the country to go and do kitchen science in in your kitchen and people's schools. This week we've got him in the studio.
3: Dave, what are you going to do? We're going to be finding out about why we put salt on roads and what it does to ice. So all you need for this is an ice cube, some thread, and some salt. Very, very easy to do. Just go and find them. It'll be easy. I haven't got a freezer here, so I've had to get this thermos flask full of ice cubes. <laughs> and I'll get one of these out, and then you just take a bowl or a mug or something like that, and I'm going to put the ice cube in the bowl. It's a bit melty. Does that matter? Because your it, thermos obviously doesn't work very well. But It actually works better if it's just starting to melt. You don't want okay. it too dry. So you don't, you don't want a crispy... Really bone dry ice cube. If it's just come out of the freezer, you might want to put it in some water for a couple of seconds. So you want a film to...
1: of water on the surface. Yeah, but okay.
3: you need that. Then I'm going to take some cotton. If you've got a big ice cube, you might need to double or triple this up. So I'm going to take about a meter of it and fold it over a couple of times. Then all you do is lay this cotton over the top of the ice cube. So you've sort of got this this thread made of multiple threads of cotton all twisted together. You, you, you could just... use yeah, you could use string or something. It's just cotton. And you're a bit just thin.
1: laying that lay
3: it on top of the ice cube on the surface so so it sort of soaks in the water yeah then i've got a big packet of salt all you actually need is a little tiny pinch of salt and very gently sprinkle it over the top of the ice cube so on the top where the cotton is yeah not too densely just a very gentle sprinkling it would probably work with something like whiskey or some alcohol spirit if you poured it around the ice cube as well but all you do is that and then phone in with what happens when you try and pick up that cotton and why you think it happened OK, how long will it take for, for the effect? How long should people leave it to cook, if you like? Probably best to leave it maybe about 10 seconds and then just lift it up and see what happens.
1: OK, do you know the answer, what's going to happen? Call in oh eight four five 2000, email chris at com or or you can text in on 07786 20 Don't forget we have a quiz running, which is uh, we want to know what is the fizzy stuff? What's the gas that makes champagne fizzy? What is it? If you think you know the answer, you can win a copy of Roger Corder's The Wine Diet. He's here with us this week. He'll be talking very, very shortly about how red wine can actually have a health promoting effect and, and how he's managed to find out how it has a health promoting effect. And also Bristol University's Peter Rogers is with us. He's actually been working on caffeine and he'll be telling us why caffeine is or isn't good for you, how it affects the body. And coming up shortly, we'll also be talking to Jeffrey Gordon, who's from the United States. He's actually found very intriguingly that the bacteria that live inside your guts could have a very powerful impact on how likely you are to get fat. So if that's something which you're interested in and you have any questions related to that, call in now. Now in the meantime, it's time for the third part in our series on science and colour and this week our naked scientist Anna Lacey has been looking at how colour plays a crucial role in medicine and in the pharmaceutical industry.
4: I'm lucky not to get headaches that often, that is, unless I've had a beer or three too many but for the people I asked here at Addenbrooke's Hospital, there seems to be another universal cause for headaches. Stress, I suppose, as much as anything.
5: Yeah, stress, that sort of related things is the main thing.
4: Work and stress, you know. And how about you? What gives you a headache?
5: Stress, money worries, women.
4: (laughs) But regardless of whether the cause is stress or alcohol, what is it that's going on at the microscopic level when we have a headache or feel pain? Here's Dr Michael Randall from the University of Nottingham's medical school.
5: You have pain receptors
1: in the body, which can be stimulated by a chemical family called prostaglandins, And one action they have is they sort of sensitise those pain receptors. They make them more sensitive to pain. And so the body is aware of pain and inflammation.
4: So in order to get rid of pain, it seems we need to get rid of these prostaglandins. But how can we do that? Well, you might not have realised it, but every time you take a drug like paracetamol or aspirin, you're actually stopping the production of prostaglandins. Aspirin, for instance, locks onto the molecule that makes prostaglandin in the first place. And if you stop prostaglandin production, then you stop the pain. But what's this got to do with the science of colour? Well, last time, I talked about how coal tar gave rise to the colour mauve, which was the very first synthetic dye. Now, it turns out that chemicals derived from coal tar were also used in the development of aspirin and paracetamol, so bizarrely, both our high street shops and medicine cabinets have both benefited from the same black goo. Now, that all happened in the 19th and early 20th century, but is still vital in cutting-edge treatments even today, and one of these is called photodynamic therapy. So what's that all about? Here's Professor Stan Brown, the director of the Centre for Photobiology and Photodynamic Therapy at the University of Leeds
6: therapy is a newly developing approach for treatment of a variety of diseases, including cancer and infectious diseases, which uses a colored drug, which itself is harmless, but which is activated when you shine light on it. Uh, when the drug is in the target, which can be either a tumor or um, a bacterial cell, for example, um, we shine the light onto the target and the drug or or the photosensitizer, as we sometimes call it, then absorbs the light and takes in the energy from the light, and that energy is then passed on to ordinary molecular oxygen, which is everywhere, including inside the body, and the trick is that this energy then converts the oxygen into a very activated form, which destroys the cells uh, immediately around it, but no further than that.
4: So what colour are these photosensitizing dyes?
6: Well, ideally we try to have blue dyes and, and uh, they're usually beautiful colour of blue so it's, it's quite an interesting area to work in for, for clinicians as well as scientists um, but basically they're blue because they absorb red light um, and the reason we use red light is that red light penetrates into tissue much more deeply than um, other colours of light and an example of that which I always um, point out, is that if you shine a torch through your hand, it comes out red, and that's not the colour of blood, as we always used to think, but it's because all of the colours except red are absorbed, but red penetrates and comes out other side. So that shows why we use red light, and therefore why we use blue drugs.
4: Photodynamic therapy, or PDT, is proving to be very successful in the treatment of macular degeneration, and in the future it's likely to be developed further for cancers and killing off superbugs like MRSA. If you want to hear more about PDT, then you can go to our website at thenakedscientist.com to hear the full-length interview. Well, if that dose of colour science wasn't enough, you can join me next week when I'll be looking at why wearing red will win you running races and how colour affects our mood.
1: Try saying that when you've had a few... Wearing red helps you win running races. That's quite a good tongue twister. Anna Lacey there, reporting on the science of colour. And if you have any questions for us on anything you're hearing so far in The Naked Scientist, the phone lines are open. We've also got a competition running. Helen, what do we want to ask people?
2: When you open that bottle of champagne, what is the cause of all those bubbles?
1: In other words, what gas is it? What gas
2: is it, yes. So if you think you know... Give us a phone call on oh eight four five 2000, send us a text message 07786 and email us at chris at com.
1: Coming up shortly we'll be talking about the red wine diet. Why does red wine make you live longer and eating lots of fruit and vegetables? Is it fact or, or is just Tony Blair trying to subvert us into eating loads of things and boost the produce industry? What's the bottom line? If you have any questions on that, give us a call. I should also say hello to everyone in Spain listening to us on REMFM. It's great to have you with us. Laying the facts bare, the naked scientists. Well, it's time now to head over the other side of the Atlantic for the first science update of 2007. This week, Bob and Chelsea will be looking at the bacteria in the air and how scientists
7: have developed a new way to model the atmosphere. This week for the Naked Scientists, we're going to talk not about the bacteria in your gut, but in the air all around you. As Chelsea tells us, these bacteria have become a matter of national security.
8: If there's anthrax in the air, is it a bioterror weapon or just a harmless, naturally occurring close relative? The U.S. Department of Homeland Security needs to know this, so they asked scientists at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory to take stock of the air's normal bacteria population. Microbial ecologist Gary Anderson says a better sampling technique was sorely needed.
9: Virtually everything that has been done to date is used culture. And we know for a fact that less than 1% of all organisms in the air, like most environments, can be cultured.
8: Instead, his team used DNA microchips. They're about the size of a quarter and capable of distinguishing thousands of bacterial species from a single gene. Their first census of the air over Austin and San Antonio in Texas found incredible diversity, about 1,800 kinds of bacteria, and the demographics were by no means static.
9: We see that the bacterial organisms in the air change in response to environmental conditions. When The temperature of a typical week was uh, warmer or windier. We had completely different types of organisms that were present than during other meteorological conditions.
8: By understanding natural variations like these and eventually expanding the census nationwide, the scientists hope to get the first reliable baseline of airborne bacteria. This can be useful not only for spotting possible terrorist attacks, but also for watching how climate change can affect the microbes in the air and potentially the public health.
7: Thanks, Chelsea. And we have some other news about our air. Thanks to a massive international effort, the atmosphere's damaged ozone layer is just starting to heal, and now scientists have a better way to check up on it. Physicist Eric Muller of Lockheed Martin Coherent Technologies in Colorado has helped develop a laser-enhanced satellite system for measuring an atmospheric chemical called OH— Muller explains that OH is not only a key marker of the ozone layer's health, it's also useful for validating scientific models of the whole atmosphere.
6: It turns out that how good the model is at predicting OH tells you a lot about how good the model is at predicting all kinds of other things.
7: And having reliable models will be critical in deciding how to respond to complex phenomena like global warming.
8: Thanks, Bob. Next time, we'll talk about new research that shows that tiny distractions can be worse for your focus than big ones. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
7: And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thanks, guys. And there'll be more
1: from Bob and Chelsea at the same time next week. And if you want to catch up with them in the meantime, there's more like that on their website at scienceupdate.com. We're talking in a few seconds' time with Roger Corder all about how red wine can make you live longer. But first, Dave, I've got an email here from Juan Carlos Idrobo. And what he says is, Hi Chris, I really like the programme and I listen to it every single week. It's so great that there's a programme where science is explained to people of all backgrounds. I'm a physicist from Ecuador and I happen to be living in Chicago and working doing my postdoc. So he's done his PhD, he's now, now working in a laboratory. The other day, walking home from work on quite a cold day, it was minus 17.8 degrees C, uh, I happen to notice something that everyone experiences on cold days, but uh, it's quite complex to explain. Why is it that you can see your breath? You don't see it on a warm day, so why should you be able to see it on a cold day?
3: Uh, basically, warm air can, absor- can hold more water um, as a va- water vapour than um, cold air can. So when you breathe air in, you warm it up in your lungs. And when it warms up, it- you've got a huge surface area of damp membranes in your lungs. That can absorb lots and lots of water. When you breathe it out and it meets the cold air on a cold day, it suddenly cools down very quickly. And all that warm air, so- all that water vapour can't stay as a um, water vapour anymore. And it has to condense into little tiny water droplets. So what you see is steam. If it's a, um, a hot day or a very more, more dry day, then when you breathe out, it doesn't get cold enough to condense, and so it just disperses gently.
1: So it's the same thing as when you breathe on a mirror, and the mirror surface is cold, and you see that layer of water vapour forming. Yeah. And then just... it disappears again, presumably because the environment's warm enough to allow the water to turn back into well, it's, gas.
3: It's dry enough, so it'll eventually just evaporate again, but much more slowly.
1: The so Naked Scientist, and uh, we're taking lots of questions like that. If you have any for us, 08459252000 is the number. You can text in on 07786201960 or email us, chris at nakedscientists.com. Now, our first guest this week is uh, Roger Corder, who's from Queen Mary at the University of London. And uh, Roger's recently published a book which is called The Wine Diet. But one of the things that you've really risen to prominence for, Roger, is actually sussing out what's in red wine to make it good for us.
5: Absolutely. That's, that's been my work. My research for the past six or seven years um, has focused on trying to discover exactly what it is in wine that improves blood vessel function and protects from heart disease. So, how did you go about that, and, and what is the bottom line? Is it good for us? All the evidence points to it being good, good for us. And but it may be that certain types of wine are much better than other other wines. Um, essentially, what we did from a laboratory point of view is, is is we studied exactly what substances in wine could change blood vessel function. And uh, then, in parallel with that, we were looking at areas where people were living longer and drinking wine, and seeing that th- these, these the wines in these areas were richer I- in this substance that we identified as being a procyanidin, which is a, a flavonoid polyphenol. What people would know them as antioxidants, but in terms of this the effects, we were looking at this was a profound change; it causes a profound change in blood vessel function.
1: Because there is a phenomenon called the Mediterranean effect, isn't there? So people who live in the Mediterranean basin, and and the French paradox as well these French people who managed to have an atrocious diet smoke like a chimney and still live to be 500 years old and and no one really understood how they did it and what you're saying is that if it's the red wine that they're drinking that, that could actually be doing that.
5: Well, I- exactly. I, I, the Mediterranean diet sprung out of research called the Seven Countries Study, and that, that showed that people living on the island of Crete were li- living longer with less heart disease, despite a fairly high-fat diet. But an uh, important part of their diet was to drink regular wine. Now, I, I started looking in Sardinia because the highest concentration of, of centenarians were based on this island in terms of, of European population, and I found that their wines were richer in procyanidins than wines from other areas. The Cretan wines are also rich in this, this particular uh, polyphenol. And so I then looked at the French, French population and there's a a regional variation in heart disease across France and there's also a regional variation in 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 longevity. And what I found was people living in southwest France were were drinking wines which were very rich in these particular polyphenols. But the interesting thing about this and the French paradox, this is one of the areas of France where they eat some of the fattiest foods. And, And so I became convinced that, a, wine should be part of a healthy diet and B, some of the nutrition advice that w- was being pushed to the general public was actually not based on fact.
1: Is there a conflict of interest here Roger, because you're a bit of a wine drinker, aren't you? You're a wine connoisseur, aren't you?
5: I wouldn't say I'm a wine, con- <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm a wine connoisseur and obviously we all like to have excuses for our habits, but w- what I was, I was, I was somebody who, who was religiously following a low fat diet and I suddenly started looking at the science of low fat diets and realised actually, if you wanted to have a healthy cholesterol level. It was the type of fats you ate rather than having a low-fat diet. And low-fat diets were often boosting um, uh, over-purified carbohydrates into people's foods, sugars into their foods, and they were actually changing their heart disease risk in an unfavourable way. And so this drove me to write a book to explain what it is about eating healthily that everybody should understand. It doesn't matter whether you're thin or fat, Wine can be part of it, but the food you eat is so crucial to your overall well-being.
1: Let's just focus in
5: on the wine story just
1: for a second to 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 really nail this. So, you saw this effect which was distributed across France, and the effect rose in the southwest specifically. So, what was going on in southwest France that meant that people there, despite an atrocious diet, were protected? Presumably, it wasn't just genetic. I wouldn't say the diet
5: was atrocious. It was just different. But but essentially, they, they were growing a grape down there called the Tanak grape, which was very, very rich in, in these protective polyphenols. But, but other wines are also good for you. It's, it's important that a tradition... Is it just red wine, though, Roger? Because lots of people say, oh, you have to drink red
1: wine. White wine's no good. Beer's well, no good.
5: Well, let me provide you with some evidence. Alsace has the lowest longevity in, in France, and it has some of the highest heart disease... That's a white wine drinking area. D-
1: do I need so to go is, on? So it is the colour. It, it is specific. The, the red, no. red wine grapes impart to the wine protective it, chemicals. Exactly. <clears throat> what, what are those chemicals? How do they work and why
5: does the grape make them? The, the, actually, white grapes also have them. So if you take the white seeds and, and seeds from red grapes, they're, they're also present. The, the difference between white wine and red wine is, is really the way the wines are made. The, the white wine is, is the fermented juice of the wine, whereas the red wine is a fermented juice with the seeds and skin present. So the longer the, the, the time between the the, the the fermentation or maceration of the red wine with the seeds, the more extraction of these polyphenols you have, and and so the higher the levels.
1: I've got an email here from Richard Richard Vogt. And he's um, writing to us from the... Uh, Montreal in Canada so is a big fan of your show. I listen to it uh, while I'm working in my lab. Uh, I heard a question about a recent. I have a question about a recent story which described a compound in red wine that was found to increase athletic ability in mice. I think he's probably talking about resveratrol. But um, if the results could be extrapolated to humans, would we be able to reap the same benefits by simply eating grapes, or is there something special
5: about the wine production that tends to bring it out? Well, well that simple question has many parts. Um, Essentially, it's possible that the, the, the polyphenols we see in wine changing blood vessel function could improve athletic ability in the way that perfusion through muscle may be improved and, and so nutrients would get to, to muscle in a way that performance could increase. Um, whether you can get the same benefit from grapes or wine it's quite clear that, that, that wine, for wine uh, to have a high level of protective polyphenols, you need to have between four and ten days to have any sense of these these present because the alcohol level has to rise to 6%. Why is the alcohol important? Because these are not very soluble... Uh, so you need it as a carrier to you, keep you, it there. So, you, so just
1: drinking the grape juice is not beneficial.
5: N- not drinking—it's not, nothing much is present in grape juice. And eating grapes, you probably don't have long enough time to extract everything from the seeds. You're really better off with a glass of wine. But there are alternatives. Okay. Well, now we've
1: okay. So we've got wine. It's got this stuff in it. How do we actually get that into the body? Obviously, we drink it. But how does it get where it needs to go? The blood vessels. Why does it affect your risk of, of vascular
5: disease? How does it work? Well, essentially, if, if you imagine that, that, that blood vessels are a, a tube and they have a, a lining which is, is protective uh, and, and it's important that that function in a healthy way. Now, the, the, the chemicals in, in wine are able to boost the healthy characteristics of this lining so that you reduce your, ris- your risk of heart disease. Now, the... the M- many people may be aware that, that chocolate has also been said to be helpful. Now, the, the the point about chocolate is that dark chocolate has the same polyphenols in as a good red wine. And so for, for non-wine drinkers, if, if they want to get these polyphenols into their, their diet from other sources, then dark chocolate become becomes a, a possibility.
2: So can we just possibly... Um, I bet people out there are dying to know. Can you say in a snapshot... What should we be eating? And uh, how many glasses of wine a day can I drink (laughs) within that healthy diet? Is
1: there enough in the average glass of wine to do this?
5: If you look, if you if you look at the average glass of wine, the supermarket wines, perhaps there isn't enough to to have much benefit. So I, I hope with time we're going to change people's awareness of wine and also the way that it's labelled. If there was more details about the wine making process, one could read the label and think, "Oh, it's been fermented a long time." It's much lo- more likely to have a higher level of these these compounds. There's no information on on a, wi- a wine. Um, how much should you drink? Well. All all the scientific evidence about reduced heart disease actually reflects a consumption level that is similar to what government guidelines recommend. So for a woman, that's no more than one to two glasses, small glasses per day, 125 mils. For for a man, two to three glasses is okay. But uh, an important factor about people benefiting from wine consumption is they're often consuming it with food. It's part of a lifestyle pattern. It's not going to the pub and shoving down a few glasses of wine and then thinking, I've got all the benefits. Because studies have shown that people who drink without food are more likely to have high blood pressure. High blood pressure increases your risk of heart disease and it increases your risk of a stroke. So it's important to understand fully the lifestyle combinations... Got another email here from Gavin. He says, "I'm listening to you in Nottingham
1: on your podcast. Um, it's recommended that we eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. So I'd like to know if I liquidise all of my five portions into into one, drink the whole lot, and t- take nothing away, would that still count as my five portions and get me off the hook?"
5: I, I think I think it would. I wouldn't su- suggest eating them, drinking them all at once, because inevitably it'd be more a drink than a a, a solid mass. But I, I think that over. Over the period of, of a day you would you would get the same benefit. Um, I think what 's important about the five fruit and vegetables per day is not necessarily the fiber it 's all the nutrients that are in these in these foods. These, these nutrients help reduce your risk of heart disease and cancer, and that's what's important, much more important than the fibre. Eating a high-fibre breakfast cereal doesn't reduce colon cancer. Studies have shown that. It's the nutrients in people's diets that are high in fibre that are, are more important.
1: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks, The Naked Scientist's. It is the Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen and Dave. We're talking about healthy living in the wake of Christmas and New Year and all those resolutions and things. If you want to know why red wine makes you live a bit longer and whether caffeine's bad for you and in a second, how the bacteria that are inhabiting your intestine could contribute to whether you gain or lose weight... Then give us a call, 08459 2000, email chris at nakedscientist.com or text in on 07786 20 First, Dave, what's Kitchen
3: Science this week all about and what do you want people to do? Very easy, just take an ice cube, um, lay some thread over the top of it and sprinkle some salt on it and gently try and pick up that thread and see what happens and phone in and tell us what happened and why you think it happened.
1: Okay, very simple. So ice cubes, bit of salt, bit of cotton, put the two all together And phone in. You could win yourself a copy of Roger Corder's book. You heard him there. He's got a book called The Wine Diet that's just come out. And also we have some calendars from the Matangini Project, which tries to provide fresh water for people living in rural Africa. It's a wonderful calendar with beautiful African scapes on it. And we've got some of those to give away, if you can get uh, that, that right. Now, our other guest is Peter Rogers, who's here from the University of Bristol. And uh, Peter works on caffeine, amongst other things. It's my favourite drug, for a cert, Roger, uh, Peter. So um, what's it doing to my body?
10: Well, indeed, it's the world's favourite drug. So quite easily, it's the most widely and frequently consumed drug drug globally. So therefore, it's important. What's it doing to us? Well, it has some pretty fundamental biological actions and, and... has effects accordingly on, on many organs and tissues in, the, in, in our body, including including the brain. And it's actually its effects are quite surprising and may not be what we think they are. Um, so for a start, uh, the most obvious thing we think about caffeine and probably a motive for us consuming it is is that we get stimulated by it. Um, and certainly we feel that stimulation. Probably when we wake up in the morning, we have our first cup of tea or coffee. It's pretty addictive, isn't it? Well, I, I wouldn't use the word addiction uh, with with caffeine at all. I think addiction should be reserved for um, cases where there's compulsive use and and so on. And where well, I think my use
1: is pretty compulsive, to be honest, Peter.
10: <laughs> well, um, you probably consume it frequently and, I and regularly, do, yeah. um, but I think actually you could probably give it up quite quite easily. Um, you I don't, don't know? Someone
1: put a you... jar of decaf in in my kitchen and I didn't realise, and I went around mm-hmm. with a headache for a week.
10: Um, yes. Now that's that's. Um, shows that you're physically dependent on caffeine. And I would say say that (laughs) that caffeine causes dependence. And actually, you probably need about a week to get over that physical dependency. So it's quite easy to give up. Sure. The the key thing is, actually, in terms of your short-term, acute functioning, day-to-day functioning, you're probably... Just as functioning just as well without caffeine as you are once you've got over that um, that week's withdrawal, a, a perpetual
1: effect. headache, a feeling of lassitude and tiredness, and inability to concentrate. Words get tangled up in your head. It, it's got all the hallmarks of an addiction. Um, but what's it actually well, doing to no, my body? Uh, when I, no, when, I, n- I, when <laughs> I drink this Nescafe, I've got this massive mug of Ultra Strong to get me through the programme. Um, w- when I take this into my body, what's actually happening? OK,
10: well, uh, what caffeine is doing is it's blocking adenosine receptors, um, uh, cell su- surface receptors um, on cells in our, our brain and other organs in our, in our body. And those um, cells of receptors are normally activated by adenosine um, that's produced um, by the body. And adenosine levels actually increase during wakefulness um, and decrease uh, during sleep. By blocking um, the effects of adenosine at, at those receptors, caffeine is keeping us um, stimulated and awake. But uh, an important issue is that with regular consumption of caffeine, that system adjusts itself so that system becomes more sensitive to the effects of endogenous um, adenosine and we we have shown in our experiments and and a number of other people have as well is that with regular consumption we're not actually getting a net benefit for our alertness and and mood from consuming caffeine because of readjustment of our physiology So it has an effect
1: for a little while but then that wears off and you're back to square one, you just need the drug there to feel normal
10: You are, what we've pretty much clearly shown now is that that the buzz you feel in the morning is is what we call withdrawal reversal. So overnight you metabolise away the caffeine you consumed the previous day, you wake up feeling tired, lethargic and so on, even after a good night's sleep you feel like that, you're in the early stages of caffeine withdrawal, your caffeine picks you up back to normal, but it doesn't take you above normal. But lots
1: of these cold remedies and things that rescue you when you've got the flu or man flu or something, they're loaded with caffeine, aren't they? The reason you feel so perked up, often I won't drop any brand names, but the reason you feel so pepped up is, is because if you look at the ingredients, it's got a microscopic dose of paracetamol, a whiff of aspirin and then this massive slug of caffeine.
10: Well, it's not got a massive slug, it's probably got a cup of coffee equivalent uh, slug of caffeine in there, and, and, and that's obviously a mis- misnomer. For example, the, the idea of energy drinks having a huge amounts of caffeine actually you can get all the same dose of caffeine more cheaply in a cup of tea or coffee the the important thing i think actually it's interesting that um it's in our analgesic remedies flu remedies um it what the benefit there is, almost certainly, is that you're reversing caffeine withdrawal again because actually when you've got the flu you don't feel much like drinking tea and coffee. So that's your replacement caffeine. So it's a good idea to have it there.
1: Very it, good for the people who want to sell you something. If they sell you a, uh, a remedy and it makes you feel so much better because all it's doing is pandering to your addiction, it's not actually making you feel better no. at all,
10: is it? Um, well, it, it's getting you, you back to normal. My, I would argue you'd, you'd probably be better without consuming caffeine um, on a daily basis although there are some longer terms of effects of caffeine that, that are very interesting.
1: Well, that that's one. going to lead me on to the next thing, which is, you know, is this bad for us? We're all drinking this stuff. Is caffeine health, health
10: deleterious? Well, I think, it, I think it should be put in perspective. So there are lots of other things I would do first in terms of my behaviour to improve my longevity um, and healthfulness than, than giving up caffeine. And it's all too often people say, give up caffeine is one of the first things. There's something wrong with you, give up caffeine. And I think that's that's not the right approach to take because actually tea and coffee are part of our lives and, and, and they're enjoyable. If there's no good reason for giving up, don't, don't, don't give it but up. Is there
1: any evidence that it, that it is bad for you? People um, have done well, trials. They
10: must have done trials. The the greatest worry as far as my understanding of the literature is concerned is that caffeine increases blood pressure and we've already heard how that increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, uh, for example. Um, but there's, there's actually a lot of discussion about about those effects. There's some There's obviously these... Um, short-term damaging effects of caffeine withdrawal—that that's um, um, not not good for our everyday functioning—but actually, there's some interesting um, um, results suggesting that actually. Um, long-term caffeine consumption may be protective against cognitive decline later in life and there's evidence that it's also protective in relation to the risk of Parkinson's disease. I think people
1: have said, though, that smoking protects you against Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and cynics have said the reason it does that is because people don't live long enough if they smoke in order to get those diseases. So maybe, maybe in the caffeine's case, one can argue actually there is a beneficial effect.
10: Um, I, think, I think there is in, in relation to caffeine. I don't think that's a, a, a good explanation, either the smoking data, actually, or, or certainly not the, the caffeine data. There's good reasons to believe um, how caffeine may interact with Parkinson's disease, for example, movement disorder, because um, adenosine um, interacts with, with dopamine in the brain, and adenosine normally puts a break on dopamine function. So caffeine blocking that um, um, adenosine function may um, de-inhibit dopamine action in, which is impaired in Parkinson's disease for example. So there are, there are plausible mechanisms um, whereby it can be, uh, caffeine can be potentially neuroprotective um, in relation to function of the adenosine system and, and also in relation to Parkinson's disease.
0: Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed <laughs> on your way to work or even at work? Mm-hmm. Why not subscribe to our podcast?
1: For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast.
2: This is the Naked Scientist with Chris, Helen and Dave here in studio waiting for your questions on anything at all and answer our teaser. Why are... Champagnes, my champagne bubbly We also had a really nice text message here from Alison Dawes, thank you very much Oh no, Alison Dawes is who it went to, who's the name? Bill Bungie, thank you very much for saying that our programme is the best and informative on all of the week's BBC radio, isn't that nice?
1: Wonderful The check's in the post I reckon we should say, but Dave um, we have uh, this question from Ria in Peterborough but just before we talk to her about icebergs, remind us about what you want people to do for your kitchen science this week
3: Just get an ice cube, um get it out, put it in a bowl, sp- uh, stretch a bit of thread across the top of it, sprinkle a very little bit of salt over the top and lift up the thread gently after a few seconds and see what happens. You'll be amazed. Here's Maria. Hi, Maria.
1: Oh, hi there, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. What do you want to talk to Dave about?
4: Um, well, I was wondering, when you came up with the ice thing on the programme, I've been wondering a long time, um, everybody knows that ice uh, that salt melts ice. You know, they put it on the roads and things and like that. Why is there such big icebergs in the sea when it's full of salt? Why don't they melt?
3: Well, salt does melt ice, but basically, what salt does—we'll get into this later—but salt makes ice um, melt at a lower temperature. And if you—and in the, so the sea, so seawater will make ice melt at maybe minus five, minus six degrees centigrade. Um, but if you get cold enough, the the, um, the water will still freeze. And so you can still get icebergs, just it's got to be a bit colder than it would be if it was in the lake.
1: Why does it have that effect on the temperature? Why does the the lower temperature and the salt have that interaction, Dave? Why should adding salt to water make it
3: need a lower temperature to freeze? Um, Basically, salt in water sort of gets in the way of the... um, Basically, water can get lost in the salt a bit, so it takes longer for it to get back to the ice cube. Um, Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Um, and so it kind of gets in the way of it forming the crystal, and so it's actually got to be colder, so it's more difficult to f- form the crystal, so it's got to be colder for it to actually freeze.
1: Got it. Thanks, Dave. Maria, do you want a quick go at the question, at uh, the quiz? Uh, yes. Fact or fiction? A person living to the age of 75 will have spent about 25 years of their life asleep. Do you think that's science fact or science fiction?
4: 25, years um Fact.
2: Yes, that's absolutely right. We don't really know why, the fact that we spend so much of our time asleep, and it's clearly so important to us, because if we don't sleep, we might, become, we might get psychosis, and even we might die.
1: Apiology, Maria, is the study of monkeys and gorillas. Is that science fact or science fiction? Sorry,
4: could you repeat the first word?
1: Please? Yes, apiology is the study of monkeys and gorillas. Is that
3: science fact or science fiction? Mm. I think
4: it's
3: fiction. Yeah, well done. Apparently apiology is the study of bees, after the Latin word for bees, apis.
1: Maria, thank you very much. to out of two as well, which is brilliant. Thanks for having uh, a go at our quiz and joining us on The Naked Scientist. Thank you very much. See you soon. OK, bye. And now to Geoffrey Gordon, who's a researcher based in the US. He's from the University of St. Louis, and he's recently discovered that bacteria living in our intestines could have a very important impact on what happens to the food we eat. In other words, they could contribute to weight gain. Geoffrey, Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. So tell us about your study and how you discovered this.
9: Well, let me start out with a sobering or inspiring thought, depending upon your perspective. Um, Adult humans um, are composed of 10 times more microbes than they are human cells. And the question is, what do these microbes do to us? How do they benefit us? How do they form strategic partnerships with us? We began this uh, study um, using a good stand-in for humans, the laboratory mouse, and took a look at genetically obese mice and their lean litter mates, and found that the principal bacterial groups in the gut, so-called firmicutes and bacteroidetes, were present in different proportions in the obese compared to the lean mice.
1: Is that just because these animals have been genetically tinkered with to make them fatter?
9: The, the implications are that there may have been a link um, between uh, the amount of fat and the composition of the microbial community. So we did another series of experiments and took the communities from obese mice and started sequencing the genes in those communities and compared the gene content of the obese community to the gene content of the lean gut community. Again, this is in mice. And we found that the obese mouse community had a greater capacity to break down certain components of our diet that are... um, difficult to digest uh, with our own enzymes.
1: So the bacteria are lending their genes to our gut. So the bacteria, by breaking down food we can't normally access, are feeding us additional calories.
9: Well, there's an increased efficiency of breaking down these uh, components of our diet, which are called polysaccharides. These are complex sugars. Um, And uh, the idea spawned from these um, uh, experiments was that perhaps when people sit down, with a bowl of cereal in front of them, which are rich in polysaccharides, that uh, some individuals are able to extract more calories than their uh, dining partners who had a different uh, suite of microbes.
1: And they're the larger ones.
9: Right. So even though the package label may say 110 calories per serving size, that's an absolute value. If you sit down in the real world, depending upon your gut microbes, you may have slightly more or slightly fewer calories uh, delivered to your body as a result.
1: So you've looked in mice and and found this relationship. Mice that are fatter have a different spectrum of bugs in their gut. They get more energy out of their food, and this might be contributing to weight gain in the mice. But what about in humans? Is the same true?
9: So we've recently taken a group of 12 human volunteers, all obese, um, and... uh, put them on one of two types of low-calorie diets, one where fat was restricted uh, and one where carbohydrates were restricted, and we looked at their gut microbes before they began this diet and during the time that they lost weight, and we found that just like in obese mice, these gut microbes that are more abundant um, in the mice are also more abundant in obese human guts. And those that are diminished are also diminished in the obese human gut. And the more diminutive group begins to expand as you lose weight. Uh, Interestingly, it's just not one member of these groups that are changed. It's the whole group that shifts in its relative abundance. So there seems to be a dynamic linkage between the amount of adipose tissue you have and the nature of your gut microbe community.
1: Now what happens if you take those spectrum of bugs that live in a fat mouse for instance and you infect an animal i say infect but you colonize the bowel of an animal that doesn't have any gut bugs or has a different community of gut bugs that's slim does it then gain weight
9: a very good question so you can raise mice under completely sterile conditions they're called germ-free animals to adulthood and then you can do a microbial community transplant you can take a microbial community from an obese mouse and transplant it into these germ-free animals and observe how much fat they gain over time. And you can do the same thing where the donor is a lean mouse. And just as you imply, um, the obese gut microbial community is able to direct a greater increase in fat than the lean community. So this this characteristic is transmissible. What we don't know is whether some people start out, even before they become obese, with a, a slightly greater amount of one group that we call the firmicutes and uh, a more diminished amount of the bacteroides and whether they're predisposed, depending upon their diet, um, to extracting more calories.
1: I guess that's going to be the thing that you're going to look at next, isn't it?
9: Absolutely. Um, And we have to really understand what these different groups of bacteria bring to the dining room table. Uh, It's really part of a larger attempt to understand how these alliances between humans and their microbial companions benefit us and whether there are differences in our microbial community structures that impart to each one of us distinctive physiologic characteristics.
1: Thank you very much, Jeffrey Gordon. Jeffrey Gordon there from the University of St. Louis explaining how the bugs that live in your guts help you to make the most of your meal times. If you'd like to find out a bit more about Jeffrey and his team, they're interviewed before Christmas on the Nature podcast which is at nature.com forward slash nature forward slash podcast. Coming up towards the end of this week's edition of The Naked Scientist, our guest Roger Corder from the University of London and Peter Rogers, very confusing that, from the University of Bristol. We've been discussing poisons and how to offset their effects this evening in the sense of caffeine, the world's most favourite drug, and alcohol, its other favourite, most, most favourite drug, at least it is with me. I've um, got some questions here, uh, one for you, Roger. Uh, this one's from Nicky, and Nicky says, if fruit and veg are supposed to have optimal nutrient content when fresh, much of what we buy is seasonally grown, but we eat it out of season. Take apples, carrots, picked and dug up out of, out of season and put into storage um, We then buy them from the shops having when they've been stored for donkey's years um, How much goodness does the food really have after that treatment? And if we grow vegetables ourselves in organic ways And then have, um, then they say things such as carrots should be lifted and stored in October and
5: November Does this mean that we should eat them in February? Will they have less nutrients by then? Well certainly the mineral content isn't going to change but it's, it's likely that some uh, vitamins will decrease over time so there is an optimal time when you can eat, the, eat these foods.
1: So does this mean then that the five a day regimen does not apply if something's been stored in a
5: supermarket giant fridge for six months? I, I think we'd have to study that to really find that answer. It, it really depends on the storage environment. I mean, if if it's a cold environment, then it's going to slow the uh, degradation of of things like vitamin C and other other minerals that are unstable.
1: George uh, from Cambridge called in to say if you don't eat enough cholesterol. Does your body not just make it anyway?
5: Absolutely. Cholesterol, the idea that you should have a low cholesterol diet to lower your cholesterol is completely flawed. In, in fact, if you eat a low fat diet and have lots of refined carbohydrates, then your body likes to make cholesterol out of those excess carbohydrates. So it, a low fat diet isn't the secret to lowering cholesterol levels.
2: I've got another question here, along the lines of what we can drink. Rosie Lee in Saffron Walden asks if red wine is good for us. Is sherry good for us
5: too? Well, well sherry is quite a rich source of alcohol, so but in moderation, I think it's it's. I wouldn't suggest you stop drinking an occasional glass of sherry, but I think it's got to be taken in the context of your overall sense of well-being. Don't drink too much and make sure the other aspects of your, your life are healthy.
2: But it doesn't have the same specific benefits, no, perhaps, it, it, as red it, it wine? No, it doesn't
5: contain the same chemicals as wet red wine.
2: Sorry about that, Rosie. But yes, in moderation, and if you enjoy it, why not?
5: Sarah's on the
1: line. She's in March. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. What would you like to talk about?
4: Um, well, I, I was told that peanut butter helps to lower your cholesterol, and I didn't know whether
10: it was true or false.
5: I haven't actually studied any um, literature on this, but certainly peanut butter is a source of monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fats. So in the context of a balanced diet, it is likely to have some beneficial effect if you are at the same time cutting out saturated fat. So it's really about replacing, say, the amount of meat meat you might be eating, red meat you might be eating, with things that, that are rich in, in, in uh, vegetable fats. And another a good example with this would be soybeans. beans. are a good source source of vegetable fats.
1: Thank you very much, Sarah. Do you want a quick go at the quiz? Oh, OK. 60% of all journeys in China's capital, Beijing, are made on a bicycle. Is that science fact or science fiction? Fact.
2: I'm afraid not actually it's fall and it did used to be 60 percent but now it's only 40 percent cars are becoming much more popular sorry
1: sarah you needed to get two out of two this week okay thanks okay. for joining us thank you very quick question uh for for you peter this is from tim he says do high sorry this he says do high roasted coffee beans
10: cause cancer he's in essex that's tim i'm not aware of any evidence that that's the case um, um the evidence for coffee and, and cancer is is pretty good. It's, it's neither protective or, or, or harmful. Um, the method by which you um, prepare coffee is quite important. So filtering coffee uh, takes out some of the cholesterol um, um, elevating effects of, of coffee. So boiled coffee is is not a good way to um, so The way the it.
1: Turkish people and Greeks like their coffee uh, is, is um, the less um, good for you. Then,
10: unfortunately, that's
1: that's the case. And what about instant? That must be bad for you too. Then.
10: Um, no, that I, uh, the um, uh, cholesterol-raising um, oils uh, are not present in the instance. So they
1: coffee. go; they get lost along with the caffeine? Yeah. When, um, uh, sorry, with the, when in the preparation yes, when you make yes. the freeze-drying effect? Yes,
10: yes. OK, I've got another one here
1: from Valerie. She says, what causes the tremor seen in heavy coffee drinkers, and is that related to dopamine, like with Parkinson's disease and things?
10: That's, that's a very interesting question indeed. So uh, there's a bit of a paradox here. In, in healthy people, actually, caffeine uh, causes um, um, tremor in your hands, it reduces hand, hand steadiness, uh, whereas, as I said before, there's um, evidence that it can protect against Parkinson's disease.
1: OK, Dave, it's kitchen science time. What did you
3: ask people to do this week? Just give us a reminder as to what you wanted people to do. Well, what I've got here is a bowl with an ice cube in the bottom. I've gently laid a piece of cotton across the top, maybe three or four pieces of cotton all twisted together. If I used a string, it would be just right on its own. Um, and now what I'm going to do next is just sprinkle a little bit of salt over the top and gently pick up that cotton.
1: OK, so it's gone shaky-shaky with the salt. So the salt's just gone on where the cotton lays across the ice yeah. cube.
3: Yeah. Just sprinkle a very little bit of salt over the top, and I'm going to gently pick up this cotton with any light... Yep, yeah, the, co- the um, ice, cube ice cube is
1: coming with it. Um, that's amazing. So it, it almost instantly acts like glue. So what actually is happening?
3: Well, I'm going to do another experiment to try and explain what's going on. So okay. what I've got here is another bowl, which is full of ice cubes. Yep, And I'm going to pour the salt in now. In it goes. So yep. what's happening with that thermometer?
1: Hey, wow, it's very quickly going down. Actually. What are you getting, minus 4, minus 5, minus 8? Well, wow, why is that going down so quickly?
3: Well, if, if you get it right, it's, you can even get down to about minus 18 degrees centigrade. The lowest temperature in the Fahrenheit scale is actually the lowest temperature you can get by adding salt to ice. Um, and when you add salt to ice, it gets colder. But but where is that coldness coming from? Because the ice,
1: according to the thermometer, is 0 degrees. And you've put the salt on, and suddenly the thermometer is recording 10 now. Why is that?
3: Well... In order to melt ice it takes loads and loads of energy and the, Which comes from the air which, or well, the
1: water around it Well
3: normally if you're, if you're warming up ice and it melts um, It will just come from the water around it, the yep. air, whatever's around it But if you forcibly melt it by adding salt that energy's got to, There's nowhere for that energy to come from because it's melting very quickly And so that energy has to come from the ice and the water immediately around it So, so why does the salt actually melt the ice cube? Well, if you imagine ice, it's basically a structure of a big structure, a big grid matrix of all of these little water molecules all stuck together, a bit like Mm. stuck together with magnets. Now, these are all vibrating a bit, and some of them are going to be vibrating more than others, and some of them are vibrating enough that they can like bounce away and sort of melt and come off into the liquid around it. Yeah, and normally other molecules in the liquid can will be joined back in and in. When they escape, it takes lots of energy, and when they join back in, it gives that energy back, so everything stays at about the same temperature, about 0 degrees centigrade. Okay. so what does the salt do? Well, if you put a load of salt next to it, um, if you imagine a molecule that's escaped, it now gets lost in all these other salt molecules, and it takes it much longer to get back to the ice. So other ones can escape, and other ones can escape. So on average, lots more of them escape, and it melts. And in melting, all that energy they took escaping... Um, cool. It's got to come from somewhere so it all cools down. And so the ice cube cold. actually
1: gets colder? Yep.
3: Is it just salt that does this? Um, lots of things. If you add whiskey to um, ice cubes, they'll get colder. So actually, you can, get a, you can get a drink if you add some alcohol to
1: your ice cubes that's colder than, than water would freeze at.
3: Yeah, if you had. Uh, in fact, this was how they used to make ice cream. Which actually comes back if you um, have a load of ice around a bowl with salt and things in it. Salt and so, like a
1: an, an ice and salt sandwich sort of thing.
3: Yeah, if you, um, with, and you add a load of salt to it, and then it will freeze the ice cream in the middle, which wouldn't. So you have a ice. little bowl in the middle with the with the cream in it. Yeah, the ice and salt
1: around the outside, and that would chill the ice cream down to frozen point. Yeah, but because um, before people had fridges. Yeah,
3: so you didn't need to freeze it.
1: Okay, so what's going on with the cotton? So you laid the cotton on, and it wasn't stuck. You put some salt on. And then you could lift the ice cube up. So
3: what went on? What's happening is in some places where the salt is, it forcibly melts that ice cube. So that, those places get really cold. And other places where the salt didn't land isn't nearly as salty. So that will then freeze. Because the whole ice cube is so much colder. Yeah, because the whole ice cube has gone down to minus five or minus six degrees centigrade. So anywhere which isn't very salty will freeze. And so it will stick to the ice cube and you can pick it up.
1: Now, returning back to the sort of real world examples, how would we see this manifest out there on the roads?
3: Well, if, if you've got an icy road, you want to stop it being icy because it's really slippery. So what they do is they just chuck a load of salt down, which means that maybe the um, ice, icy water will freeze at minus five rather than naught. And so it has to be a much, much colder day for it to be dangerous and slippery.
1: Right, so before the road will actually become frosty, you need much colder weather.
3: Yeah, there is a temperature where this won't work out. If you get down to minus 20, minus 30 degrees centigrade, it no longer works. I believe in Finland it it does routinely get cold enough that you don't bother putting salt on the road because it's not worth it. You just have to have snow chains or big pointy things in your tyres.
1: Is there any other chemical you could add to the road which would enable it to remain as a liquid at a much lower temperature?
3: Um, there are lots of other chemicals. Basically, anything which will dissolve sodium acetate, which is what you, which is actually the salt and vinegar taste and salt and vinegar crisps, yep. um, is a very good one, and it's less dangerous. It's less bad for the environment. so They tend to use that in airports and things like that. But
1: what temperature will that make the water want to freeze at, rather than the the minus sort of eighteen that you get your Depends ice cubes? Depends how
3: much you add it to. I think sodium acetate probably is a bit better. I haven't got the figures in my head. I'm afraid.
1: And uh, there was an invention where cars could detect how cold it was and then spray something onto the wheels to make them grip better do you know what that substance would have been then
3: i have no idea um i guess it would be something an antifreeze like you have in your the reason why you had antifreeze to your car water system is to make it freeze at much lower temperature and the reason why you have to put a lot more in the winter is because it could get a lot colder so you need it to freeze at an even lower temperature i think that's one you can have as homework dave thank you very much dave for a fantastic experiment
1: cheers Well, that's it for this week's Naked Scientists. We're back with another edition of the programme next week, and it's our world-famous science Q&A show, the science phone-in, a whole hour of the programme devoted just to your science questions. But we do need some questions in the meantime to answer, so please send in anything that's crossed your mind, the wackier and wilder the better. Send them now to chris at NakedScientists.com. And also, it might be worth checking out our website, which is nakedscientist.com. We've got a fantastic forum there. It's thriving, humming and buzzing with lots of people posting their questions ask and answer anything you like Nakedscientist.com forward slash forum thanks for your company thank you very much to Dave Ansell to Helen Scales and our fantastic production team Petro Minch and Anna Lacey until next week goodbye
0: thinking about your next career move in research and development